Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word, even from places that we may not always look in scripture. I pray that you would help us to understand these books written several, thou- several thousand years ago. Um, and we thank you for your forgiveness, for your love, and how you desire to save people from every nation. So in your name I pray, amen. All right, so as I mentioned, we're going to look at Jonah and Micah this morning. So go ahead and open up to the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah follows Amos, and then Micah comes directly afterwards before the book of Nahum. And as you're flipping there, I want to mention something about the order that we're going through the books in Sunday school. Because you may have noticed that we entered the prophets, and we began with the book of Isaiah, but then we skipped Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and went to Hosea after that. So the reason why we did that is that there's several different ways to order the books of the prophets. One way is um, by their size, which generally the Bible reflects. So you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets are not more important. They're just bigger. So that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations, which are taken together. Lamentations is a smaller book, but it's generally considered to be written by Jeremiah, so it's considered with it. And then Ezekiel and Daniel. So these are the major prophets because they're larger. Again, not because they're important, more important. And then the minor prophets are from Hosea to Malachi. And these are grouped together because they're generally smaller. Um, And this is often called the book of the 12. So in the Hebrew Old Testament, there are not 12 minor prophets. There's one book of the minor prophets. So they're taken together. So you can group the the prophets by their size, as the Bible does, but you can also look at them chronologically as to when the prophets ministered, when they wrote. And this is a little bit tricky because several of the prophets minister at the same time. And so it's hard to date, okay, which one was first, you know, did he say this part first and then this one? And some of the prophets don't have a lot of chronological markers, so we don't know exactly when every prophet ministered. Um, But in general, the order of the books that you have in your Bible orders the books by size and by chronology. And then as the chronology flows, so also does the target audience. Because earlier on, books tend to address the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, whereas later books tend to address the uh, southern kingdom of Judah. And this is partially because in 722 B.C., the kingdom of Israel is exiled, and so anyone who comes after that can't speak to them. They're speaking to Judah. Now, this isn't exact. It's just kind of a generalization, but you can see on this timeline, and by the way, if any of you guys would like, I can get you these resources, so um, this is for your information. If you want to copy down, you can, but don't feel rushed. Um, the timeline's laid out on several different axes. One is the nation that the books are written to, um, but then the timeline goes from left to right. So you can see up at the top, um, Jonah and Nahum were written primarily to the nation of Assyria. And then Obadiah, which we saw a couple weeks ago, was written to Edom. But then you can see down here at the bottom, you have Amos and Hosea were the only ones written to Israel primarily. But then all of these books down at the bottom are written to Judah. Now, again, this is not exact because Amos also speaks to Judah. Hosea speaks to Judah. Isaiah speaks to Israel, and Micah also speaks to Israel. And uh, just wanted to mention, um, this timeline has Joel uh, very early. I know Scott mentioned that it was later. Scott was not wrong when he said that. We don't know exactly when Joel was written, so this timeline puts it there, but we don't know exactly when it was written. So 
But anyway, um, we started with Isaiah as the first of the prophets because it was earlier, because it was the first of the major prophets. But the rest of the major prophets jump ahead to the exile of Judah to Babylon. So before we got to those, we came over to the minor prophets, starting with Hosea, Joel, going through some addressing the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, and then um, coming up through Jonah now and Micah. So we're working our way through. Next week, we're going to do Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk, and then switch back to the major prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, which will get us to the exile, and then Ezekiel and Daniel even into the exile, before we return to some of the historical books like Chronicles and Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, which were written during the exile and for the exiles, and then finishing up with the minor prophets at the end, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, which are written after the exile. So hopefully that is kind of helpful to say, why are we skipping around in our Bible so much? There's a couple different timelines going on, um, but hopefully that is helpful. And also, hopefully that gives you enough time to find the book of Jonah, if you have not yet. So let's go ahead and jump into the book of Jonah. So Jonah is probably the most well-known of the minor prophets. I would say if you were to look at that list of 12 and you were to ask, okay, what information do you know about all of these 12 different prophets, Jonah is the one that everyone in here and probably outside of here is going to know the most about. Uh, children are taught this story in Sunday school. There's a Veggie Tales about it. You know, for some reason, there's no Veggie Tales about Hosea and Gomer. It's like they just decided to skip that story. But even the secular world is really familiar with the story of Jonah, and he's kind of a byword for running away from something. You know, if someone runs from something, they're called a Jonah. But while the story of Jonah is very familiar to us, I don't know that the message and the main point of Jonah is as familiar. We know the story, but we may not know the point. And so today we're going to ask the question, why do we have this book? What is God telling us about it? And we'll you know, briefly consider some of the details like, um, did he really get swallowed by a fish? How did this happen? All that, you know, those, those are interesting things, but there's more to Jonah than just those details. Now, we don't know who wrote Jonah. It was not given an author. But because of the events that happened in Jonah, um, that they, some of them only happened to Jonah. He was the only one there. We know that he was involved in the writing at some level. Either he wrote it himself, or he came back to Israel and spoke about it, and someone recorded it for him. So Jonah was involved in the process. And the first time we meet Jonah is actually not in this book, but is in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Jonah is mentioned during the reign of Jeroboam II, who was one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, and his reign began around 780 B.C. So we know Jonah um, was ministering in the 700s B.C. So let's, let me read this verse for you where Jonah is mentioned. It says, Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Heper. Now Gath-Heper, if you see Israel here, Judah down at the bottom, you move up towards Israel, there's the Mediterranean Sea on your left. Gath-Heper is up here in the north, in Israel. That's where Jonah is from. That's all we know about him, that he's from Gath-Heper, and that he ministers during the reign of a king of Israel in the north. 
what we find out about him here is that Jonah is involved in the prophecy about the borders expanding in Israel. Now, during Jeroboam II, this is a time of success. There's economic success, political success. The borders are expanding, and Jonah, as a prophet, is involved in saying, hey, guess what? I have good news. Israel is getting bigger. You know, he's very pro-Israel. You can see he's connected with the prosperity of the nation. And this helps inform why he has such an odd reaction when God calls him not to go to Israel, but to Nineveh. So why is Nineveh important? Well, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, which is a nation that is north of Israel along the Tigris River. So here you can see this is Israel and Judah. That was the map we just looked at there. Uh, Assyria and Nineveh is going to be up here on the Tigris. So it's north. This is probably, I think this is Iraq or Iran right now. Um, so this is north of Israel. And in the time before Jonah, they had become a very powerful military kingdom. At the time of Jonah, they had kind of diminished a little bit, but they're about to expand again and become the major power in the world. There are uh, really sickening stories of what the Assyrian armies would do to the people they conquered. They were a brutal people, um, and they created a worldwide empire that lasted over 200 years before they were usurped. So Jonah was not a stupid person. He knew what Assyria was. He knew that they were powerful, and he may have even known some of the prophecies from the other prophets, like Hosea, that Assyria was going to be involved in God's judgment on Israel. You know, Jonah knew Deuteronomy that said, hey, if, if the nation continues like this, you're going to be in exile. He knew that, and he may have even known that Assyria was the nation that was going to execute that punishment. So the context of Jonah is this prophet who loves Israel, who is wary of Assyria, but is called to go to their capital city. And this is helpful as we read the first verses in the book. This is one through three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh. He instead wants to go from Joppa, so this is a city on the coast in Israel, to Tarshish, which is out in the Mediterranean somewhere. We don't know exactly where it was, but it's first away from Nineveh, and second, more importantly, it's away from the presence of the Lord. See, Jonah is set up to geographically run away from his mission, but it's mentioned twice in these verses that he's really running away from God. That's most striking about his response. The next scene is on the boat that Jonah has boarded. And verse 4 says that God hurls a great wind at the sea. So it's not just that bad weather comes up. It's that God brought this storm against the boat. It's showing his sovereignty here. He's intervening to accomplish his plan. And the next scene contrasts Jonah's response with the sailor's response. He's hired this boat. He may have even bought the boat. He was a very wealthy man, prominent in Israel. And these sailors are pagans who are worship They're trying to pray to their own gods, whatever god they have, trying to cover their bases to say, okay, someone's got to have this storm under control. So these are pagan people. 
they figure out that it's Jonah who is the cause of this storm. And listen to verses 9 and 10. And he said to them, this is Jonah, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the, man, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So Jonah says, hey, I fear the Lord, and he's the one who's in control of this storm. But Jonah is showing he does not actually really fear the Lord. That's not how he's acting. Instead, it's the sailors who are afraid, and they exercise a real fear of the Lord. They actually obey. They respond to what God is doing. So what we see here in this first chapter, in these first scenes, is first... The right way to respond to God is in the true fear of the Lord and obedience. But second, we see the sovereignty of God is on big display that God brought this storm, God controls the storm, and that he is more powerful than any of these other gods that the sailors were worshiping initially. They have no power. It's only the one true God. And so Jonah actually acts as a foil for the right response. He is the prophet who's supposed to follow God, and he says he's fearing God, but it's really these pagans who immediately recognize the true God and respond in fear. So then chapter 1 ends by describing the sailors throwing Jonah into the sea, the storm calming down, and then Jonah being swallowed by a great fish and staying in its belly for three days. And this detail is what makes a lot of people doubt that this is even a real story. They say it's, it's like a parable like Jesus would tell. It didn't really happen. It's just meant to illustrate something. You know, it, if you think about someone in a fish for three days, how do they survive there? How do they survive the, the stomach acid? How do they get oxygen to breathe? You know, why would a fish swallow them whole? It doesn't make sense. But I think it's interesting because Jesus refers to this story. He refers to Jonah in Luke 11, 29 and 30. And he uses the three days that Jonah spent in the belly of the fish to represent that he would resurrect on the third day. So this tells us that Jesus believed that this actually happened to Jonah. And Jesus is the best interpreter of the Old Testament that has ever lived. So if Jesus thought this, and he can't be wrong, why would we doubt that this is an actual story? And in addition, if we believe that scripture is God's word, we want to let it speak for itself. We don't need to interpret it just because something doesn't make sense to us. Also, if the God of chapter 1, which we've already seen here, if he can bring up a storm and stop a storm, if he has this power to do this, why would we expect that he can't bring this fish to swallow Jonah? Why would we expect that he can't preserve him in the fish? And why would we expect that he couldn't control this fish? You know, So to doubt that this is actually happening is a, not a high enough view of Scripture or a high enough view of God. So this point, when Jonah is in the fish, is a really big turning point for Jonah. And chapter 2 contains a prayer from Jonah that it says is, verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So listen to verses 5 through 7. The whole prayer is real interesting, but just listen to 5 through 7. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. 
So it seems that Jonah is describing the scene where he has been thrown into the sea. He's falling. He's drowning. And as he's reaching the depths, as the depths are closing in on him, he finally reaches the breaking point and says, okay, God, I give. You win. I'll do whatever you want. And that's when God sends the fish. It wasn't immediate. It wasn't like Veggie Tales where he snaps him up from the life preserver. Jonah is at the end of his life. But he calls out to God, and God preserves him. God saves him. Jonah finally reached repentance, and we see God's patience with Jonah and his graciousness to him displayed in saving him. Now, the result of uh, Jonah being in the fish and then calling out to God, repenting, is that Jonah gets belched up from the fish onto dry land, and God comes to him again with the same mission and says, I need you to go to Nineveh. I need you to preach to Nineveh. Now, this time, Jonah has learned, and he goes to Nineveh, as he's tired of being eaten by fish. Now, this journey would have taken some time because the fish wouldn't have dropped him off right at the doorstep of Nineveh. You can see the Mediterranean ends over here, and Nineveh is well over here. So this would have taken a, a long journey for Jonah, taken a lot of effort, a lot of time. But he finally makes it to Nineveh, and in chapter 3, he gets to the city, and he begins preaching to them. It takes him three days to go through the city, and he's just walking the streets, talking to people, proclaiming this message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, how do you think it would go over if someone in Lawrence just came and started walking down Mass Street and saying, hey guys, six weeks and Lawrence is going to be destroyed because of its wickedness. You know, I've driven through there where there's been street preachers with um, big microphones and speakers and People don't really pay much attention to him. They kind of ignore him. But Nineveh responds in repentance. Listen to verses 5 through 9 of chapter 3. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So just like these pagan sailors, the men of Nineveh respond instantly. This is repentance, where they understand who they are and their sin. They understand who God is, and they respond by saying, oh, God, save me. The sailors do that immediately. The Ninevites do that immediately. Jonah got there eventually, but he's really a foil for these other characters who actually respond. And so what's God's response to this? Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So this shows that God, who cares about sin and would punish sin if there's no repentance for it, turned and saved the city. He relented from this disaster. So this is great news. One of the greatest powers in the world, one of the biggest evil nations in the world at this time, has turned to God because of the preaching of the word. And so the book ends and we're all happy, right? No. The first verse of chapter 4 says this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? I think this is really the message of Jonah. Jonah fled to Tarshish. He fled from God because he didn't want God to save Nineveh. This shows us that God's desire to save the nations is greater than our desire to see people saved. God desires all to be saved, to all to come to repentance. He has a great desire to save people, and his desire is greater than ours. I love God's response to Jonah here. Jonah is so mad that God has saved these people. And God says, are you, is it really right to be angry? Like, think about this for a second. He's trying to put it in perspective. Now, we don't get an answer from Jonah whether, like, how he responds to that. But we do see kind of a repeat of this story in chapter 4, where Jonah goes up on a hill. It's very hot. And so God, again, in his sovereignty, this shows his sovereign hand, raises up a plant kind of miraculously out of nowhere that gives Jonah shade. But the next day, God raises up this worm to destroy the plant, and he also raises up a wind that makes it even more uncomfortable for Jonah. All three of those things didn't just happen. It says God brought them about. And again, Jonah is so mad, he says, God, just kill me. (laughs) I'm hot. I don't want to be here anymore. Just get me out of here. And God again says, do you really do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah says yes, and then the Lord kind of brings it home. Verses 10 and 11 in chapter 4. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God is really showing Jonah his hypocrisy. He's saying, first of all, Jonah has no right to be mad at God for making decisions in his sovereignty. That's God's prerogative, and he has a better plan than we do. But second, Jonah is displaying an incredible amount of selfishness. Jonah is saying, it's more important for me to be comfortable than for this nation to be saved. He cares more about his own personal, physical comfort than the eternal destiny of 120,000 people. I think this is at the heart of what Jonah is telling us. That God is a God who is patient. He's been patient with Jonah through the whole story, and he's patient with Nineveh. He is gracious, again, both to to Jonah and to this nation. He desires to save, which you see in Nineveh. And he even saves Jonah multiple times in this story. And he is sovereign. He has the power to, to control all of these decisions and to bring about his desired will. Now, we don't exactly know what happens to Jonah after this. We know he told people of the story, but we don't know his response. That's because the book of Jonah is about who God is. It's showing us his character. And if we didn't have Jonah, we would miss this incredible love that God has for the nations. We would miss his patience, miss this graciousness, this expression of his sovereignty and his desire to save. Jonah gives us a big picture of God and his desire to be glorified by saving the nations. And in light of this, it's worth considering just two brief questions of application. First, how do you respond to God? 
There's been a lot of examples of people responding to God and Jonah. You can respond in the fear of the Lord like the sailors do, or in belief and repentance like the Ninevites do, or in disobedience, or maybe even begrudging obedience like Jonah does. So first consider, how do I respond to God? But second, I think this is probably the biggest message in the book, do you love the nations like God does? Is your love for unbelievers like God's love? Would you rather God destroy your enemies, whether they're political, whether they're different religion, someone you don't like, would you rather God destroy them or save them? Would you rather God killed every Muslim in the world right now, the peaceful ones and the jihadists, or would you rather God save them? And if you would rather that God save them, are you willing to go to them? You know, maybe to the nations around the world, but maybe to the Muslims here in Lawrence. Would you be willing to come to Turkey? Or would you even be willing to talk to your Muslim neighbor or classmate? I think these are the questions we need to ask as we read Jonah and see this big picture of God's desire to save the nations. So that's Jonah. But now flip the page over to Micah. And we're going to go back into the minor prophets that we don't know very well. So Micah like many of the minor prophets, was written by um, Micah, the prophet. And we know probably even less about Micah than we do about Jonah. All we know is that he was written by Micah of Moresheth, which is back on this map. So Jonah was up here in Gath-Heper. Micah is down here in Moresheth. So it's southwest of Jerusalem. Um, and he is mainly ministering in the nation of Judah. Part of his message is to Israel, but his main message is to Judah, and even Jerusalem, kind of representing Judah, specifically. Now, it says in verse 1 that Micah prophesied in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. And Jotham's reign ended in 735 B.C., and Hezekiah's began in 715. So that means that uh, Micah had to prophesy at least for that span of 20 years, but he could have done some before or some after that. So he's at least ministering for 20 years, um, slightly before Israel's exile, but also going past it, which is why his message is primarily to Judah. Now, Micah breaks down into three sections that all begin the same way. It's a very simple outline. Each section begins with the call to hear. Just like a royal herald going from town to town with a message from the king, hear ye, hear ye. So chapters 1 and 2 form the first section, and they begin in verse 2 of chapter 1. Hear you peoples, all of you. That introduces the first section. Then in chapter 3, we hear in verse 1, and I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. And that begins the second section, which goes from chapter 3 to chapter 5. Lastly, Chapters 6 and 7 are introduced by the words, hear what the Lord says. So we see these three sections, hear, hear, hear. And that's the very simple outline for the book. Now, like Stephen mentioned a couple weeks ago, the prophets include four basic pieces. They include um, accusation of sin, judgment for sin, a call for repentance, and mercy. And each of these three sections in in includes... Um, either most or all of those aspects. It's not a um, first section is this, second section is a different aspect, third section is different. It is, there's accusation throughout, there's warnings of judgment throughout, there's mercy throughout. 
But what we'll notice as we go through the sections is that from the first section to the third, the promise of hope and mercy gets bigger and brighter and more clear. The movement of the book is from heavy, dark judgment, but it concludes with hope. And it's almost like we're on a train entering a really dark tunnel. It's very dark, but you can see the glimmer of light at the very end. That's the first section. As we get closer, that light gets bigger. It's still dark, but you know that the light is coming, and you see that end getting bigger. And then finally, in the third section, we break out into the sunlight, and all is illuminated. And that is hope. That is the book of Micah. Now, as we look at the messages and themes of Micah, we're also going to notice that he uses an image. He uses mountains throughout his book to tie together some of his promises of judgment and mercy and accusation and warning. He uses this symbol uh, partially because he's referring to Jerusalem a lot, and Jerusalem is built on a mountain. That mountain is often referred to as Mount Zion, and you notice a lot in the Gospels it talks about people going up to Jerusalem and down from Jerusalem. That's, I, I always thought that was because it was in the north, because I think of up and down and north and south. That's not right. It's up high um, altitude. And so he uses this image of a mountain throughout the book. Now, his first use of mountain is in chapter 1. So if you're in chapter 1, look at verses 2 through 5. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places, places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. We'll stop there. This first section of chapter 1 starts with a warning that God is coming down to earth, and he's not just coming for a friendly chat. He is coming in judgment. And his wrath will be so unbearable that the mountains will melt when he comes. If you have ever been to a mountain, just imagine what it's like standing there. If you've been to the top with giant boulders, imagine those boulders melting. Or if you've looked at a cliff face, like us guys went uh, to Arkansas last year, imagine that cliff face melting off like butter. That is the picture of God coming to earth in judgment, that nothing can withstand his presence. Now, verse 6 shows that this judgment starts with Samaria, which refers to Israel. But then verse 9 shows that it's also infected Judah, and God's judgment on Judah is imminent. Chapter 2 describes the sins that have brought about this coming judgment. And it describes how the people are condemned for coveting, for theft, for lying, for oppression. It says they go to bed thinking about evil thoughts and then they wake up to do them. And it reminds me of a kid on Christmas Eve going to bed dreaming about the presents they're going to have in the morning and then getting up and play with them. But this is with evil. And then chapter 2 also says that the nation condemns any preaching that says that they can't do what they want. This is just like a false teacher who says, no, you can preach, but not about anything that I don't like to hear. But after chapter 1 and 2 gives this warning and gives this condemnation, it ends on a very interesting note. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. 
They break through and pass the gate. Going out by it, their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Now, after all of this judgment, you'd expect this to be a message of judgment again. But it seems like this is God saying, no, I'm going to gather you together. Even after I judge you, I'm going to preserve a remnant, and I'm going to lead you out in safety. I'm going to shepherd you, and the Lord, I will be your king. This is in contrast to their wicked rulers who were not ruling them well. This is, a, this is God saying, I will shepherd you. I will lead you. There is no change in Israel's attitude yet. There's no indication that they've earned this. This is just God promising in his mercy that forgiveness is coming. He's doing this of his own initiative. And it's interesting the images that he uses of describing them like sheep, describing himself like a shepherd, and like a king. Seems like he's setting us up for something. This is the first glimpse of the light at the end of the tunnel. But the second section gets us closer to that light. Chapter 3, verse 1, starts by calling the rulers of Israel to listen. God has just said, I will be your king. I will be a good ruler, but Israel right now does not have good rulers, or Judah, I should say. So the chapter 3 here is mainly a condemnation of the rulers of Judah. It says that they are condemned for injustice, for evil, for misleading the people. They are motivated by their own selfish desires. And the two things that they really want throughout chapter 3 are food and money. Again, they just want their own selfish physical desires. The prophets will bless those who give them money. They will curse those who don't. And the priests and the prophets and the rulers will only do their job if they are paid handsomely for it. Verse 12 says, and this is again going back to the mountain, that the mountain of the house, hold on, where am I? The mountain of the house will become a wooded height. And basically what he's saying is the temple, which is built on the temple mount, there on the mountain, is going to cease to be the place of God's presence, and it's just going to be this empty spot. The rulers of Judah and the nation of Judah has sinned so far that God has left them, and they have ruined this temple. So again, the mountain is used as an image of judgment. But then the very next verse, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the mountain is switched. And this is the most memorable use of the mountain in Micah. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he goes on here and describes this scene where the nations are coming to Israel to submit to the Lord, to get judgments from him, to have him settle disputes. And this is a time of peace. It says that God will settle these disputes between the nations and the swords are beaten into plowshares, farm equipment, and the spears are beaten into pruning hooks. They don't need these implements of war anymore. There is peace. Can you imagine a time when the UN becomes useless because God is settling disputes between nations? Or can you imagine a time when guns are so unnecessary that they're melted down to make buildings and tools? Or when we can turn tanks into farm equipment or aircraft carriers into shipping boats? 
This is what he's describing, this time of incredible peace because God is ruling in Israel. And it's hard to imagine what could bring this about because we certainly don't see that now. You know, we, our, our swords and spears are still swords and spears. They're just more effective now. But Micah says that this will happen in the latter days, which means it has to do with God's final work of salvation. It has something to do with him bringing all things together to resolve all of the sin, all of the death, all the issues in life. And this scene here, talking about the mountain of the Lord being established, is actually referring to the millennial kingdom. This isn't the eternal state, because we see that there are nations coming to the Lord with disputes. And that's something that we're not going to see in the eternal state. There are not going to be disputes to be settled. So this is something that happens when Jesus returns to earth and reigns in Jerusalem as the king for a thousand years. Micah describes this scene to contrast the wicked leaders of Israel. He says, this is what your leaders are like, but this is what I will be like when I return. And this is, we can see here that we will not see world peace until the world is ruled by the Prince of Peace. And as we wait for the glorious return of Christ to set up this kingdom, Micah leaves us with our appropriate response. Look at verse 5. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Micah is saying, look at what's going to happen. Our God is going to win. We know the outcome. And so all these nations are following these false gods, but I'm not going to do that because I know the one who comes out in the end. So this message for us is that we know the one true God who is going to reign forever. So take heart in the difficult times because Jesus has overcome the world and following him is worth it. Now, we're going to go very quickly through the last couple chapters, but chapter 5 has one of the most familiar sections um, for most people in Micah. <coughs> and this is where he gives some specification to what this ruler, what God coming down to Israel is going to look like. He says in verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and, look, shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So who is this talking about? Jesus. Yeah, this is literally the perfect time for a Sunday school answer. Micah is telling us that this God, God who is going to come as a ruler, he's going to come actually in Bethlehem. He's going to be born. And in Matthew, we see that this is Jesus. We see that the way that God is going to bring peace into the world is through God coming to earth as the shepherd to forgive sins. And Jesus said that he came to seek and save those who were lost, and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And we hear these descriptions from Jesus, but you can even tell back in Micah, back in the 700s B.C., that God was going to come to bring peace to his people. Micah is really a book of hope, and that light at the end of the tunnel is getting bigger and bigger. And when we come to this final section, starting in chapter 6, we again see the use of mountains. Look in uh, verse 1. 
Hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And he goes on and he basically says, look, look at all this history that I have given you. He mentions Moses, Aaron, Miriam. He mentions the Exodus. He mentions Balak and Balaam and how they were trying to curse Israel, but God frustrated their efforts and he blessed them. And he mentions... (coughs) Um, Shittim and Gilgal, where Israel sinned by intermarrying with Midian, and he killed 24,000 people for their sin. That, that was at Shittim. But then at Gilgal, God restored them, and they reconstituted the covenant. So God is mentioning all these things to say, look, the mountains remember these. They were there when I did them. Do you remember? And he's wanting them to remember his faithfulness and to respond in the right way. And this is where we see probably the other part of Micah that you're familiar with in verse 8. He says, this is the response that I want, chapter 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The the verses before that says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oils? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's basically saying God doesn't want a response that's trying to earn favor with him. He doesn't want a response that's trying to work for these blessings. He says, I am going to bring forgiveness to you, and I want you to respond by loving God and loving others. That is true worship. And so Micah has been filled with God's loving kindness, his forgiveness, his desire for us to respond in worship of love, but... I think he really saves the best for last. As you get to, you know, even in chapter 6 and 7, there's still judgment. There's still kind of wrestling. There's some tension. But at the end of Micah, we burst out into the sunlight when we get to verse 18 of chapter 7. Listen to this. Listen to how it ends. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Remember the image in chapter 1 where God was coming to earth and he was trampling on the mountains? By the end, that image has been changed to God trampling our sin underfoot. That's the message of Micah, that God is a God of forgiveness. And through no work of our own, he has come to forgive us our sins. He is compassionate, he is long-suffering, and he desires to save those who repent. So if we didn't have the book of Micah, we would miss this rich reminder of forgiveness. We'd miss the glorious picture of Jesus being the one to bring peace to the world. That Jesus is the better ruler than anyone here on earth. We would miss the picture and miss the hope that he is coming back to set things right. And miss the idea that because he's coming back, we can trust him. We can follow him. And we would miss this great encouragement at the end of Micah. That God is a compassionate God who forgives sins. So I love that Jonah and Micah were paired together today because in Jonah you have this picture that God has 
the greatest desire to save the nations. And in Micah, you see that God has an incredible amount of forgiveness. And they go, they go together so perfectly well. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll uh, finish up. Dear Lord, I thank you for this morning. We praise you that you are God who saves and you are God who forgives. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for our sins. And I pray that we would see your desire to save and that we would respond by going out to tell those who need to be saved. Praise and glorify you this morning. We pray that you would be glorified in what we do here. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed.